Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Shreya Gupta, and I have Dr. Scott Steele here with me. Where are we, Dr. Scott Steele? <laughs> Shreya, so it's so great to be here in Dublin covering the ACP GBI meeting. Who would have thought way back when we started this all that they, we'd be finding ourselves here in Dublin, Ireland, overlooking uh, the Liffey River? So great to, great to be here and great to finally meet you person to person. That's right, all the way from Cleveland to now Dublin, Ireland. We are very excited to be covering this conference, and we... Uh, are feel very honored to be here in UK where we have so many listeners uh, for Behind the Knife. So we thank Dina Harji for the opportunity, who's uh, the Duke's Club president, and you will be listening from her at some point during this conference. Yeah, we're really excited to have uh, the opportunity to cover this thing, and a, a, a huge thank you to both Dina and the uh, the president of the society, uh, Dr. Brendan Moran, uh, for giving this opportunity to cover the meeting. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we're going to be hearing from a lot of different people as we kind of give you the recaps in terms of the day, we're also going to have a little bit more of an extended lecture um, uh, by Dr. Solomon that we'll go into a little bit later. But, you know, one of the things that we just wanted to cover for some of our listeners, Shreya, is a little bit about the recap of kind of some of the things we took home from today's session. So one of the interesting things that we want to remind everybody out there is that the tripartite mission um, meeting is coming up in New Zealand in November 9th through the 12th of November 2020. And that's something that you can go to your internet and take a peek at. It's an amazing event um, across the board to kind of to kind of cover. Uh, and we want our as much maximal participation for people to come out there. The other interesting thing that we saw is a couple of really good sessions here today. The first one being on an emergency surgery type session. Yes, that was a great session. And it's so um it's amazing to come all the way here and see that emergency surgery session along with colorectal surgery, the type, the similarities that we see in the U.S. and they are facing here in, in U.K. as well. We see how mortality rates do remain high for faculty who are dealing with colorectal surgeries, but in an emergent uh, situation. Yeah, one of the interesting things that they do over here is they have the uh, the National Emergency Laparotomy Audit that was last in November of 2018. This is the fourth patient report that talks about all the outcomes for emergency laparotomy. And essentially, they have this report that's color-coded and highlighted by the things green is good, red is things that need work. In a very quick snapshot, you can see how things are. We also talked a little bit about frailty. Yeah, and the most important thing that I took away from that session was that frailty is not associated just with old age. It's indeterminate of the of your patient's age. It's dependent on their nutritional status and so many other factors will, which make up frailty index. Yeah, and there's a lot of discussion over here, especially like in the States, regarding who should be doing this emergency general surgery. Should it be specialists? Should it be generalists? What is the role of the specialist? What training that she had if there's training in emergency general surgery? But also those specialists, such as colorectal surgeons, should have a role in involved in emergency care. As we know that outcomes, you know, in many cases, if you do a lot of these, they tend to be a little bit better. 
The next session that we got into a little bit was talking more about uh, different types of obstructions. The first one was bowel obstruction and large bowel obstruction specifically. We learned a little bit about the CREST trial in the United Kingdom, where we're talking about kind of looking at emergency versus elective surgery and how the role of stenting versus emergency resection goes in there. Yeah, and then they talked about the two different kind of stents that are available here in the UK as well as in the US. You have the uncovered stents, and then you have the covered stents. The uncovered stents mainly have one of the major complications that they can erode through the wall. Um, and um, whereas with the covered stents, they are expensive, but also have the their main drawback being that they can slip off. Yeah, I think one of the things that was kind of highlighted in that session was the fact that the mortality rates at both six months as well as three-year all-cause mortality was no significantly different for those patients that could undergo a curative resection. And I think one of the things that surprised uh, the authors of that particular study found that the, there was a significant complication rate even associated with uh, the stent as well as surgery, 46 versus 60%. We went into then the small bowel obstruction by Dr. Kieran Walsh, who talks about small bowel rates still being uh, rising. I think the interesting thing there is the fact that CT does play a role in decision-making. And it's a little bit more than that. We need to not just say, oh, the person's got a small bowel obstruction because all the different types are critically important. Talking about which ones, uh, which ones should be um, operated on, which ones should we take a look at a little bit further. Is it ischemia? Is it obstruction? Is it a hernia? When should we use gastrographin uh, in looking at adhesive small bowel disease? And then we had a really good uh, kind of finish up talk to that by one of the anesthetists, Dr. Sarah Hare, who looked at high risk surgical patients. Patients benefit from having enhanced recovery um, uh, protocols by evaluation prehab that is becoming such a hot topic and we know that the outcomes are better for these patients. I think one of the things that's critically important that she highlighted is that we need to document risk and that we should evaluate and bring in patients and their family members to talk about the decision-making process, because we all know out there, we want to do whatever we can as surgeons, but in many cases, are we doing too much? And maybe that's the time to have the end of life or the care goal needs, because there are people that are high risk, and then there are other people that are super high risk. Yeah, and these are the patients that we need to be documenting not these risks and also having end-of-life discussion very early on. These discussions don't have to be uh, at just when patients are dying or when options are limited, rather should be a part of the decision-making from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. And they talked a lot about the fact that discussions, we oftentimes focus around mortality, but it should be more than just dying. Living with a tracheostomy, stoma, wheelchair, this is a shared decision-making. And it's oftentimes difficult, especially in the emergency setting. As we went into throughout the day, we looked at the six best abstracts in the BJS session, so look for those. And then we had a wonderful lecture about Dr., uh, from Dr. Michael Solomon talking about equipoise and bias in the surgical literature. Finally, we, this afternoon, we wound up with a couple of different sessions, the first one being on quality, surgical site infection, as well as they spoke upon the role of enhanced care recovery, talking about the cooperation and collaboration, not just competition to see, are you doing your better, but let's learn from one another. We also talked about how a lot of things that may differ for those of you in the States about the NHS trust and really what that encompasses, the National Healthcare Network here in the UK and talking about M&M and how we need to feed into a quality improvement program, ensuring that you capture all the cases. I think one of the things that I took home more than anything else is that anybody in this particular one could bring cases to the meeting. It didn't have to be an attending surgeon or a consultant that could do it. And then finally, some of the things we need to be uh, a little bit aware of is how some of the, the things that we use in commonly, such as 
pelvic mesh can cause uh, subtle complications or not so subtle complications and how we have to have a role of a multidisciplinary team in discussion with the patient is paramount. Finally, this afternoon, it was the Dukes Club training session where we had the opportunity to have a speed dating round with the fellowships where they got to sit down with us and talk about colorectal surgery or different institutions and what is available out there. So all in all, it was a really good day. So next, we're going to go into uh, just an absolutely wonderful lecture by Professor Michael Solomon, who is the professor of surgical research in Central Clinical School in the University of Sydney. He's the academic head for colorectal surgery. He's also the RPA head and the Surgical Outcomes Research Center. He's the chairman of the RPA Research on Academic Surgery and a professor of surgery at the National University of Singapore. And Mike gives a great talk that I hope everybody has the opportunity to take our part in whole, talking about what is the good and the bad things about colorectal and surgical research in general. Uh, thank you very much, Brendan, and to the council for inviting me to deliver and the great honor of delivering the British Journal of Surgery uh, lecture and uh, for creating such a dilemma for me for the last three months to try and find something other than exoneration that may not put you straight away to sleep. So uh, the title is described is actually to try and make uh, me think. I went back and looked at the immediate past uh, presenters of the British Journal of Surgery and some of them are in the audience today including Brendan and I think hopefully John Monson and there's some great mentors here in the list, uh, certainly mentors uh, from me, and even as you go further back, I look at John Nichols and I look at Vic Fazio, and in my editorial roles, they were great mentors in uh, editorial roles. I look at Richard Resnick from Toronto, and particularly my great mentor, uh, Robin McLeod. Uh, you can see in that list that rectal cancer, laparoscopic, minim minimally invasive surgery seems to be a big priority, but her talk in 2001 on evidence-based coloproctology, I wanted to base a little bit about following on from Robin's mentoring to me and to talk a little bit about mentorship and alternatives to evidence-based surgery, but hopefully at the end of it you'll have some concept of uh, evidence-based surgery. Hippocrates in translation said one must attend in medical practice not primarily to plausible theories but to experience combined with reason and in our apprenticeship and mentor model uh, it's probably uh, very relevant uh, in a lot of what we learn. We learn as mentors and from our mentors and may not always be from evidence-based surgery. And I found this uh, photo of, I guess, my mentors' mentors being John Golliger, Edward Hughes from Melbourne, Rupert Turnbull, who was Vic Fazio's mentor, and Vic Fazio, a great mentor certainly to many Australian and New Zealand surgeons, but certainly uh, perhaps one of the great mentors for colorectal surgeons around, uh, around the world. I was lucky enough also to be on a panel uh, at the last European uh, Congress meeting and to have uh, Stan Goldberg, uh, Bill Heald, who's... Uh, Brendan's mentor, Steve Wexner, who's been a, a mentor to many people, uh, for younger people like Beatrice and Des, and I sort of put myself somewhere in the middle there. I think I'm sticking with the young people. But uh, when Brendan asked me to talk about this and be uh, reflective, uh, perhaps provocative more than scientific, and not to talk about exoneration too much, uh, I felt a bit like the uh, Ivan Mistrovic uh, sculptor from Croatia. I really quite had to think what I was going to talk to you about and not be so... Uh, mentory and old, and I would actually say uh, I'm actually not as old as Brendan. So I've just been to the Duke's Club meeting and it was fascinating to see all the innovation and that was being talked in the meeting just as leading into this one. But I think uh, I'm going to aim at more at Duke's Club people starting their career uh, and also uh, people in, in finishing their training. And the first thing I say is innovation is a word that we throw around very uh, uh, commonly and very cheaply. 
the definition of innovation is actually a new idea that has been shown to be more effective. An idea or an invention is not necessarily actually for the good of anyone. I think there's a very big difference, and we jump and we call everything an innovation often before we have any evidence. And if we go, really, we should go from the idea of the invention to innovation and then diffusion. And I think in surgery, and what I'm going to really talk about today, is we often go to diffusion first, and then we start to go back and say, oh, this is very innovative, and then often we don't even look for the evidence. So in thinking about it, I'm going to talk about some of it in political bias in how we actually interpret randomised controlled trials and talk to you a little bit about the work we've been done doing, uh, equipoise, which is a measure of uncertainty, and collective equipoise being uh, our whole collective rather than individual, and then a term I uh, coined in my surgical outcomes unit, which my four directors actually hate. They're, one's a health economist, one's an epidemiologist, and the other is a research psychologist. And I said I was constantly in decisional conflict as which way I wanted to go. And they said, that's not a real term, you can't use that. So I've been using it ever since, which is uh, unfortunately perhaps a reflection of my weakness of my personalities. What do I mean by decisional con uh, conflict? When subjective measures conflict with objective measures, examples, survival it's gently in one way versus quality of life and choice in the other way, or what we see in certainly rectal, when technology changes too fast for higher levels and randomised trials to even catch up to prove it. And I think that's where we are with minimally invasive surgery at the moment. And when trial results come out, such as in our laparoscopic rectal, which conflict with current practice and perhaps what we uh, want, and I'm perhaps the great one who's the most surprised about our results from our laparoscopic rectal cancer trial. I was also a guest at the Asian Pacific Federation, and the president, who's a great friend, April Roslani, and a great thinker, stated in her address that we are moving away from an era of evidence-based medicine into a value-based medicine where clinical decisions consider socioeconomics, distributive justice and cultural values in a patient-centred approach. And I'd never seen it written so well, and I think the latter I completely concur with, that we don't really look at the whole broader uh, concept of what we do, but I really criticise you cannot do the latter without evidence base. So it's not instead of evidence base, you can only do the latter with an evidence base. And I think in, in decisional conflict in surgery, we do objective measurements of survival, recurrence, complications extremely well, and we should be congratulated as a body for doing randomised controlled trials, and I'm very encouraged by all the trials that are being presented here today and in various aspects of where they're at. But we do subjective measures such as patient choice, quality of life, patient preference, extremely poorly, and that's what the point of the message I'm getting today. If you look at just low rectal cancer, and uh, this is a talk I gave away, so I just took the title, there are so many different options that we've got at present to choose when it's a surgeon sitting treating one patient. How can we actually make it? You go to a meeting and every enthusiast is saying it's an innovation to do this, it's an innovation to do that, we need to do ELAP. We need to do a lap elap, we do need to do natural orifice, and even the top line, uh, even two hands open is now becoming the, the, uh, uh, the, the new black, as in as the new white. And, and perhaps watch and wait, how are we going to answer that? This is a study we did in two, th two years of New South Wales. New South Wales, for a population of Australia of 26 million, is somewhere between a third and a half of the whole population. And in two years, over 2,000 rectal cancers were treated. But when we actually looked at who treated them, 40% of rectal cancers were treated in hospitals, not surgeons, hospitals, 
less than five a year. How are they going to get the experience or how are we going to assess what we do when we have so many different options in rectal cancer surgery? And if you look at the cousin for, say, left hemi, you need 63 to be actually be, to be competent in a left hemi. What is it? How, how competent do you have to be a low rectal cancer, which is even more complicated? They say TATME, you estimated between 60 to 80 before you're actually uh, competent. And how are we going to train people to be competent and not to cause harm? If you look at my other area of recurrent rectal cancer, which I'm particularly interested in, and you look at the data from France and from England, the majority of centres are doing less than five recurrent rectal cancers in a a centre per year. How can you train? How can you test? How can you do it with such small numbers? And this is a great study which came out of Sweden, who have the most amazing population statistics, and they treated 426 recurrent rectal cancers over a seven-year period and only did 13 pelvic exonerations. How can they assess what's actually good for them, despite their survival on the right-hand side, showing that's actually best for their patients? So I'm not quite sure what happened to the others. This is the Australian papers the weekend before I came while I was still tormenting what I should talk about. Charlie Teo is a, a guy I went to school with, who's a neurosurgeon, a little bit older than me, who's been for 25 years telling everyone how fantastic he is and uh, he's better than everyone. He's, he's got his own television show at the moment. He got into a bit of trouble because they were crowdfunding 120000 to let him operate on people who were not insured. And this developed a lot of uh, uh, debate. But he had the press on his side and he had television, particularly as he had his own television show. And it became very obvious that the people, the patient population and the press, did not understand evidence. In fact, in fact, they were supporting him in people crowdfunding for what was available in the public hospital system. So I don't think we control our bad behaviour and evidence base, and we, and our, we haven't got across to the population where evidence base is and what it is. And at the same uh, weekend, the disaster of mesh in, in women's vaginas, from the FDA approving mesh for a procedure that it wasn't approved for. It was originally done for incontinence, and it was approved for a prolapse, and then the industry getting surgeons, gynaecologists who weren't actually even doing any surgery and telling them this is an eight-minute operation, you'll make a fortune, and then actually distributing uh, the invention to people, invention, notice not innovation, to people who, are, who weren't even trained to deliver it. It's actually a great disaster, and it's a great disaster for surgeons. And in the letter to the editorial underneath the Charlie Teo article, this came from the research director of the Cancer Information and Support Society, which I've never heard of before, and they said the problem is not with excessive costs in cancer treatment, it's just that, in fact, we've never proven to treat any cancer to save lives. I mean, if this is such a, I put, I said what the, uh, I won't say it today, but I sat there and I brought Ivan back into it because I said if that's what patients think about our assessment of cancer care, we're in big trouble. And in fact, he said the only evidence in trials is in emotional trauma and chronic stress. And certainly uh, reading that gave me emotional stress. So we're all very comfortable with the top four levels of evidence. About when I started doing exaggerations, I added this slide and added level six, which you could probably say is now very relevant to the mesh industry. And seven was listening and believing myself. I said, when I'm starting to do exaggerations, there's no data in favour. I've got to be very careful that I don't start listening and believing myself despite there being no evidence, and we do, really do need. I'd probably say it's now the Charlie Teo level seven evidence, but it certainly was something that I was aware 20 years ago to make sure. So what alternatives? This is one of the great articles I've ever read in the British Medical Journal in 1999. What alternatives do we have to evidence-based medicine? They listed a whole list 
there's evidence at the top, then there's eminence-based surgery, and we all can think and perhaps look around the world, the room, and look at the eminent surgeons we all know. You measure it by how white their hair was and how they illuminate. You've got vehemence, how much they yell, eloquence, how smooth they are, providence, diffidence, and nervousness. But the most interesting one was confidence-based surgery because this article said it applies only to surgeons. So we've got this whole list of alternatives to randomised controlled trial. So I went straight to the article because I thought this was really amusing. And all they had was, this is restricted to surgeons, go back to the table. I really found this extremely amusing until I looked at the five references and I was the only surgeon that had been referenced in the article. (laughs) Sir Austin Bradford-Hill, when he uh, designed the streptomycin trial, summarised trials in surgery as trials in medicine 20 years later said, a very little experience of medicine shows that very often the beliefs are accepted without adequate trial and that very often they are wrong. And we all know that our physicians think of our medical literature or our surgical literature not in the most uh, redeeming fashion. But if we really go back to how do we do it in the lab, can we do it in this simple algorithm down the the right-hand side? I've been very interested in this uh, for some time, but I think we should be going with efficacy with good trials or the best studies we can do. Then we should generally spread spread it out, assess that, then work the cost-benefit of that or cost-effectiveness, and then go to the validity. And should we moving it? Should we be doing it? In surgery, we go to four first. We all argue about four and then decide, will we go back to one and see if it works? And then it's suddenly integrated into the treatment paradigm. The Annals editors uh, just last month decided we needed to encourage better publications, evidence-based. So they decided to write an editorial to improve evidence-based surgery. And this is perhaps one of the problems in evidence-based surgery. Now, in a two-page article in evidence-based surgery, they had no fewer than 18 shortages of different scoring systems for evidence for good trials. So I think we've perhaps made it a bit too confusing uh, than it really is. My first decisional conflict I got in surgery was uh, when I finished my fellowshipping exam in Australia and New Zealand, that's your exit to become a general surgeon, do whatever you want and in fact practice or you can go and do post-fellowship training. And the college runs a course where for four weeks you rotate amongst all the teaching hospitals in Sydney and and then you get raped and tortured by every older surgeon who's often an examiner and tells you completely what you know is wrong. And I felt... Uh, whatever hospital you went to was completely different to the one you went to the day before. And by the end of the, the month, I decided it really didn't matter what I knew. I had to find out where the examiner came from because then I knew what was the treatment I had to answer that question. So I got so frustrated by that and fortunately passed. I went to Robin McLeod and worked in Toronto for three years and did a master's in clinical epidemiology and trial design because it really became, I guess, from frustration and interest in what I was doing. We set up a very complex algorithm, a bit like what I tried to explain to Brendan to get him confused, including incidence of disease, equipoise and preferences and then designing and and rare and changing technologies and try to design an algorithm that you could do for a treatment effectiveness question to get a design that fitted the actual question, noting that we could only do randomised controlled trials of about 9% of relevant clinical questions. I think in uh, colorectal, I've 
been writing more on decisional conflict uh, over the last couple of years than I've probably been publishing. But I think with the treatments of rectal cancer, with uh, minimally invasive in our results of the rectal cancer, I think suddenly the uh, introduction of things such as TATME without a- adequate trial results as yet, and with complications that we'll talk a little bit about that really haven't been published, there's a lot of conflict we've got within our own specialty in between evidence and what is current practice. But it's not just us. We are getting good randomised trial data out now from other specialties, even this robotic randomised control trial from Brisbane, comparing open to robotic, which showed no advantage. It was just as safe, but there was absolutely no advantage and an increase, significantly increased cross cost from a robotic surgery. And as everyone knows, this laparoscopic minimally invasive cervical cancer study uh, in the New England Journal, which actually shows a significant survival disadvantage if you do minimally invasive surgery. But what's happened, that really, they, everyone knows about that paper, but has it really changed practice? I think, and like when I look around our institutions, they're still doing laparoscopic hysterectomy, but as long as they're actually informing consent, and I love what the the uh, robotic surgeons, 80% of prostates are still done robotically in Australia and somehow the patient's now got to know how the, what the experience of the surgeon is and how good they are. So I don't know how you walk in as a patient and say, I can tell you're a very experienced surgeon. So how, this is a really good book on diffusion. We know the laggards, around 16% and innovators. Is that really true in surgery? In our research in surgery, we do a lot of patient preference and equipoise studies. It's a little bit different. I originally thought it was 95% of us all agree on the same thing and 5% a little bit wild and wacky out there doing some different things. But in fact, it's 30% of us are enthusiasts and perhaps innovators. 30% once they've learnt something, hate it, and they think those other 30% are zealots and should be watched at, at all costs. And then the other 40% probably weigh up slowly and make their decisions along the way. This was a hype cycle I found uh, when I was uh, researching, and the interesting part is the bottom part, about when we start a new idea, and I think it's very relevant to surgery. We often have an innovation trigger. We have this completely very quick inflated expectations where we raise, then we suddenly start to crash as some bad results come through. We get a trough of disillusionment, and then if it is actually reasonable, we get a slope of enlightenment, and I think probably I'm just on that bottom slope with laparoscopic surgery at the moment after a little bit of disillusionment, and after 25 years of exempts, I'm probably more to the right of virtual reality there. That being said, I think I am in the group of the 30%. In uh, my academic institute, we've got a lot of uh, research going on in advanced GI, such as the exenteration and HIPEX study, which uh, Brendan's been great, giving us great help on. We have a robotic program that we've only set up in the past four years. We have five robots from the university to, to the teaching hospitals, and no robotic operation can be done unless it's on a... Uh, ethically approved trial uh, in our institution. We're starting transplantations of complete face, uterine transplant, and we're doing a lot, we're starting 3D printing, uh, particularly in oncology, head and neck oncology, actually making a jaw using a CT of the, of the other side and reflecting it to this side to make a jaw that looks exactly the same shape as the patient's original pre-cancer uh, jaw. This is in 2016, we put our first 3D reconstructed titanium implant into this patient for a re-recurrent rectal cancer involving the sacrum and the ilium and the sciatic nerve, and that's the patient with a complete sciatic nerve palsy on the left and a partial sciatic nerve on the right, actually walking three weeks after the operation. I call this patient Clavian Dindo because he's had every complication that has been ever categorised. 
But at three years, he's home and he's mobile and he's cancer-free. But I can tell you along the way, I still really question whether this is the way to go. And to me, that's the conundrum of exoneration is how far can we push the barrel and when do I go from level three evidence to level seven, seven evidence and who's going to stop what we're doing along the way? Most centres around the world would say, don't do it if the sciatic nerve is involved. We just published last month 71 sciatic nerve excisions and showed that their survival and their function and quality of life is the same as those that don't have sciatic nerve and more reassuring, 94% of them were independently mobile. So I think sometimes we push it and we might get it right, but, but often we don't publish it when we do get it wrong. So equipoise is the state of uncertainty in clinical decision-making. It was originally coined by Freeman individual is me, collective is all of us, and it's really a good measure for the need of innovation. And this is one of the first equipoise studies we did in vascular surgery in Australia, and it was a time in 2000 when endoluminal had just started and carotid stenting. And this is an equipoise graph of the average risk, and you can see that open surgeons were were still favouring open in the average risk, but in the high risk, they were already favouring endoluminal, and you couldn't do a randomised control trial for that, but you could on the one beforehand, which they did in the Netherlands, and prove it. Carotid stenting, on the other hand, for the average risk, was very much against that endocorectomy, was out. But a perfect equipoise graph and a perfect equipoise ratio for a trial, given that the middle one is undecided for vascular surgeons for the high risk. So we can measure uncertainty. I've spent, as I've just started this research uh, institute and I'm mentoring more, I tried to look back and said, well, what, I done, what have I done for 25 years? Has it been good or bad? And it's pretty, the best way to critically appraise yourself is actually to write it up, review it, put it out as a document and get absolutely shot back if it's all of a waste of time. So I wrote two document, doctorates at the same time as I started this academic institute. I think my decisional conflict uh, for exoneration now is we have very good evidence of long-term survival around 38% at 15 years in our cohort of recurrent erectile cancer, and you can see quality of life was shown to be better than palliation. But that's what our conundrum now is, how far should we go, and pain and complications are the major drawback for exoneration that we have to improve for the future. After five randomised trials and 20 prospective cohort studies in minimally invasive colorectal cancer surgery, I'm now underwhelmed by the subjective benefits. I think the objective and cancer is safe, but it's interesting, it's now established. And what is even more interesting is an inverse relationship between the evidence base and the actual uptake of laparoscopic surgery. We've just published last month or two our three-year survival from our laparoscopic rectal cancer, and our conclusion was confidence intervals included potentially clinically important differences favouring open resection so that the combination of primary and our secondary study, which we published in 2015, may not support laparoscopic resection of rectal cancer as a routine standard of care. Now, when we first submitted to JAMA, JAMA liked it, said, but you guys have to write that no one should do lap rectal cancer again. And, I, and we said, and as, as did Jim Fleshman, that is inappropriate from our data. So we pulled it out of JAMA and put it into annals purely because the editors wanted to say something which our data did not support. But they wanted us to do it and not an editorial, which is an interesting editorial bias. 
our original article, which came out in 2015, which uh, the American Cancer Society or Society of Cancer came out with the results of our two studies suggesting that laparoscopic rectal cancer was now not recommended and should be stopped. And again, I guess it's from physicians and oncologists, perhaps knee-jerking to, to data that is not supporting it, but it's not dramatically against it, and I think that's a little bit over the top. Despite that, the, lap, the meta-analysis of the big randomised control trial still favours o- open resection for circumferential margin and TME grades of excision. So open is not dead. And what we've got to work out is how to choose them. If you look at it, that's just pooling the analysis of the big studies. There still is open marginally better than uh, laparoscopic. And you've then got to decide what is inferior. Is it 2%, 5% or 7%? I think the editorial review that accompanied our two papers is probably a very good reflection of what my thoughts are at the moment from Heidi Nelson and Kelly Mathers. In the meantime, it would seem prudent to favour proximal and less advanced cancers in the rectum for the laparoscopic approach and reserve the distal and advanced cancers for open surgery. And I think that's true, except I would say I would say laparoscopic abdominoperineal, where the cancer operation is from below and you can finish off with almost incisionless abdomen would be the ex- exception. And that would be the way I'm now interpreting the data. But what is interesting is... After all, common sense would suggest that in the absence of compelling benefit, there is no rationale for accepting risk. They're actually suggesting we don't have compelling evidence of subjective benefits in laparoscopic rectal surgery, and therefore why would you accept any risk? It's an interesting interpretation from that, and probably the one I'm sort of was favouring around that time. This is a really good article on bias and publication bias I'm going to talk about. Publication bias is when the results suit the expectation or needs of the authors, sponsors or journal editors in the context of negative trials are often not reported or are rejected by editors. And I think after being involved in editorial boards for some time, this is definitely true in colorectal. We hide back our bad results, even when authors have been brave enough to put them forwards. And Andrew Stevenson, who's my great friend and here a fellow in 1998 doing our first robotic uh, resection uh, when he was my fellow. This is his disclosure slide without my photo, of course. And he says he does laparoscopic, robotic and transanal and open is down there, tiny, even though he was the principal investigator of that study. And in fact, when he looked at his results in that in 30 that he was randomised to open versus lap, he has a 10% success rate favouring open surgery, but then he puts a slide out saying he doesn't perform open surgery. I kind of think it's publication bias. It's doing what you really wanted to do from the start, despite your evidence, even in randomised controlled trial, that it's actually better the other way. Nancy Baxter, who's a a Robin McLeod clone, so a very good researcher, published this last month, a meta-analysis of the non-inferiority trials, and came to the conclusion that laparoscopy was not was non-inferior to open surgery based on the consensus of 58 worldwide experts. But then when you go to the methods, and I always go to the methods first, they say they could not get consensus about what was non-inferiority. So how can you do a meta-analysis of something you hadn't, couldn't even get consensus for? So again, publication bias. TATME, I think I got involved and I wrote that editorial at the request of the uh, after I reviewed this paper, uh, the current con- consensus statement. At that point, I was also reviewing an article, which I can't say where it came from, but it was over here in one of the journals from over here, where someone had submitted 25 t- first TATMEs, 
They cut one urethra and two ureters. And like every great surgical article, the conclusion was this was safe and feasible. Now, I said to the editors, this is fantastic. We must publish this. People do need to know. It's a 4% urethrectomy injury and an 8% ureter injury for anterior resection. I mean, we should be calling the police really here, but we should publish that and write an editorial saying we do need proper trials because this is potentially dangerous. And it was at the same time of this consensus statement, which I then, interestingly, in editorial twist, I then wrote a review, uh, an editorial at the request of the, of the editor who happened to be one of these 18 enthusiasts. How can 18 enthusiasts meeting paid for by the company call it a consensus conference, when there's no one in the alternative arguing. The consensus is you bring two different groups together, you argue it out and come to a consensus. So you've got 18 enthusiasts sponsored by them and they're calling it a consensus conference. I call it a junket, but anyway. So what about the handling of conversions? And I'll be finishing soon. So this is one of the most interesting debates that's happened. This is, uh, get, being on a lot of editorial boards, I get to review a lot of things and perhaps make some comments. This is essentially lap versus open colons. And the average conversion rates are between 8% in our trial to 30% in one of the trials from over here. And how you handle the conversion is important. If you look at an intention to treat, there's absolutely no difference of survival around 70% in all the randomised trials. It is safe. Laparoscopic for colon is safe. But if you take the conversions out and compare the 80% versus the 100%, then suddenly you're getting marginally better because conversions, we know, are the more difficult cancers. So I've had two trials where they've actually taken the conversions out, said they're open, let's look at the lap group versus the whole group. Now, we've taken, they've taken the 20% of bad ones out, and that's actually wrong. But I had to review from North America. I won't tell you where, but it's in the middle somewhere. And they put forward a small randomised control trial where they not only took the bad 20% out, they put them in the open group because they'd now had open. So now you've got 40 bad ones in the, in the open group. And not surprisingly, they said laparoscopic surgery is far superior than open. This is bias, and this is what we shouldn't really be doing. But conversion rates are a way in intention to treat of actually choosing, or conversion cases, the very difficult ones that will do badly. Lowering your conversion rate doesn't improve your outcome. So I asked David, why do you make it your primary endpoint of your, your uh, roller study? David Urbach did this great uh, graph of early data versus later data, and as you improve from non-randomised trials up to the large randomised controlled trials, you can see that the benefit of laparoscopic drops, and that goes at the same time when, when you increase. And this is why I say there's an inverse relationship between the evidence base and the ad adoption of laparoscopic surgery. And we published that if you look at non-randomised meta-analysis versus randomised, there was a 30% over-exaggeration of benefit in the non-randomised, and David showed that if you looked at the small randomised trials to the big randomised and the good randomised, there was another 30% exaggeration of benefit. So not surprising, particularly after our rectal cancer, I felt I'd just wasted 20 years, five randomised control trials and 20 cohort studies in uh, perhaps pushing forward laparoscopic surgery. That being said, I still am an enthusiast, and I'd still do a lot of it. And fortunately, we just published a quality of life study in colon, which actually showed a two-month benefit in the laparoscopic arm. Why, I have no idea. So I guess 
I don't want to be too negative. I was supposed to be told to be provocative. This is what I do. I still do minimally invasive for all of those ones down the left-hand side, but I've become selective. I'm trying to choose those ones that would have been the conversions, and I think we can in rectal cancer surgery now choose the ones that laparoscopic's not suited for. Whether we do it TATME or open, I think we should be comparing it to open, and I think LAP and TATME should be put to trials, and I'm glad to see that you're all doing that. This is our first patient preference study, asking them what relevance did they think laparoscopic was in their whole decision-making. 0.8 is almost no interest in laparoscopic surgery if there could be any harm in terms of survival. So I think in conclusion, we do objective measures well, but subjective measures of patient choice quite poorly. This is a great quote to finish on from Ernest Cobman, who I think became the president of the American College around the time of the First World War. I'm called eccentric for saying in public that hospitals, if they wish to be sure of improvement, must find out what their results are, must analyse their results to find their strong and their weak points and must compare their results with those of other hospitals and must care for those cases they care for well. Don't treat people you don't do. Don't do exonerations if you're doing three a year. And avoid attempting to care for cases which they are not qualified to care for. And you finally, most important, you must welcome publicity not only for their successes, but also our errors and weaknesses. We should, and as editors, we should be publishing our bad results as well as our good results. However, don't be distressed here. You've been ranked in the international uh, healthcare performance uh, above Australia, number one here. We came number two. And in a year of the Ashes, the World Cup of Cricket and the World Cup of Rugby, it's really important that uh, UK and Australia are very competitive. So I had to look at why I went to the methods. Why did you actually outrank us? And that's because your care process, your access and your administrative efficiency and equity is very good, the top three. But actually how your patient goes, you're actually only just above America and second last. So let's not worry about how the patients go as long as your system is a really efficient. But well done. And fortunately, you, your coaches are both from Australia and your cricket and your rugby team. So perhaps we shouldn't, we jump on many bandwagons where rhetoric is greater than science. Rhetoric often predates the evidence, but starting to in the interpretation of randomised trials, post-dating the actual evidence in one way. We sometimes concentrate on what we want more than what the patients actually want. And finally, remember, innovation means the new idea and evidence that it's of benefit. Thank you very much. Hello again from Dublin. Um, Right now I am joined with Dr. Nicholas Wentham. He's the clinical lecturer and an honorary specialist at University of Edinburgh. Welcome on Behind the Knife. Thanks very much. So, uh, Dr. Wentham, can you give me a brief introduction and uh, talk about your Hunterian lecture that's coming up in a couple minutes here? So, thanks very much. I'm really excited to give my Hunterian lecture. It's forming the base of my research and what we're interested in and looking at epigenetics and IBD and how not only we can use that to inform Uh, pathogenesis but also some of the clinical applications. Epigenetics is a potential interface between the known genetic contributors towards IBD as well as the uh, other environmental risk factors such as smoking and my talk talks about our discoveries in epigenetics but also the applications such as biomarker discovery. Mm -hmm. 
Tell me a little bit more about how did you get into this topic and what kind of uh, research experience have you had um, so far in learning more and more about epigenetics and inflammatory bowel disease? Sure. So this formed the base of my PhD project, which is now finished and the work's been published. It's in, uh, been published in Nature Communications a couple of years ago. Uh, the what really interested us is we know IBD has a strong genetic contribution around about 200 genes, but we also know there are definite environmental risk factors such as smoking, the gut microbiota. And what we wanted to know is whether epigenetics, so that is changes in the way genes are expressed, but no change to the underlying code mm-hmm. might be one of the potential mediators between genes and the, and the environment. Mm-hmm. What was your work uh, based on? Was it an animal model? How did you discover or what formed the results of your paper here? Sure. So it was based in humans. We took blood samples from patients who had been newly diagnosed with IBD before they'd received any treatment. And we looked at the methylation signal in the blood. And there we're really talking about the the white blood cell count, so the Mm -hmm. leukocytes. And we also performed some more detailed analyses. We did some cell sorting so we could look at the individual cell types. We looked at various ways of quantifying methylation, but also importantly, looking back at the codes, so the underlying genetics and the gene expression as well. Do you see any of the drugs, um, any pharmaceutical um, new avenues coming out from your research on epigenetics? So a lot of the, a lot of the work's been concentrated in biomarker discoveries. So for our audience in colorectal cancer, there's a commercially available SEPT9 biomarker, which has been touted as a potential non-invasive biomarker instead of fecal occult blood testing. And that is something that's driven interests for IBD. Uh, there are drugs at the moment. Um, most of the drugs are concentrated in kind of hematological cancers and then it's not so much of a focus colorectal cancer or IBD to date, but these things are moving on so quickly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Hello, and now as part of the Duke's uh, club members, we have Dr. Kapil Sanan here. Um, Dr. Sanan, thank you for being on Behind the Knife. No, thank you for having us. So uh, can you start us off with giving a brief introduction? And I wanted to talk about about your amazing research work done on navigational surgery and 3D printing and would love to hear some words from you. Cool. Well, um, so I did my work at St. Mark's with Robin Phillips and Phil Tozer. And we started looking at 3D reconstructions, which we initially did um, based on the MRI scan. And then we moved to print them, make small animations, and then started to work out um, how best to make this accessible to all. So we then started working with touch surgery and designed an app whereby every user can now get those same navigations. And so are these 3D models like something that patient can take home? Yeah, absolutely. It was, I mean, we have this population when we were, when we were doing our research who were young, highly educated. They had inflammatory bowel disease. It was chronic. It never got better. And what they really wanted to know is how they would consent for the repertoire of treatments that are available to them. And also how they would go home and speak to their families and say, this is what my surgeon said and this is what I've decided to do. So we worked in uh, conjunction with the IBD patient panel and some marks, and they asked us to make some 3D printouts, and that's how we got going. Mm-hmm. Do you see that this has improved your patient compliance? So I think it's improved how they consent. So in terms of true informed consent, understanding why we're offering them the surgery they're going to have, um, understanding the risks, the benefits, exactly what's involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had 
and we have being a, a tertiary centre a, a number of patients who come and say I've been on a Facebook forum and I see that this person with a fistula in Canada is having a VAFT or a FILAC or an advancement VAP they've had great success I want you to explain why I can't have that mm-hmm. and the models and as well as the 3D reconstructions were really good to kind of aid that conversation that's very interesting and talk to us more about uh, the navigational surgery part of it so so we decided with 3D reconstructions there were three stakeholders who would benefit so the patients for the informed consent the trainees in terms of understanding what the consultant was doing and also the surgeon in terms of planning and that came about with complex fistulas with scar tissue mm-hmm. uh, recurrence uh, you know similar to uh, planning for TATME similar to the exenterations that are also done at St Mark's and we thought the best way for the surgeon to see that would be an immersive platform specifically an augmented or a mixed reality platform whereby they could switch on and switch off from the imaging and help navigate their surgery and we hoped what it would do would allow the surgeons to plan before the operation to minimize their complication rates to really become more efficient with what they're going to do and also explain to everyone around them this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. Do you see this becoming more and more a standard of care here in the Europe? So I really, really hope so. I mean, there are barriers to, to all innovation. Um, I would like to think it makes everything a lot easier. Mm-hmm. It's much easier for the trainees. It's much easier for the surgeons. And I think if we can um, prove it with hard endpoints over long term, if we can show that it's cost neutral and we can show the backing of our patients, I, I think we could bring this forward in the next couple of years. That's excellent. Thank you for joining us on Behind no the worries. Knife and congratulations. Right now, I am here in the studio with Dr. Dean Harris. Dr. Dean Harris, welcome on Behind the Knife. Thank you. Uh, could you tell us how what your role is at the ACP and what do you do for your, for your living? Sure. Um, I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon working in Swansea. Um, I've been a member of the ACP since becoming a consultant in 2010 and given you know a fair number of uh, talks to them before, both on submitted work and also um, invited work. Delighted to be here supporting the Dukes Club session today. Very good. Could you give us your brief uh, intro and your highlights on the talk that it's coming up in a few minutes here? Of course. So I'm talking about the microbiome, which is uh, an increasingly popular topic of conversation amongst colorectal surgeons and uh, the general population in, 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 in overall. Um, it's got an expanding role into how we look after our patients, both before, during and after surgery. So my talk's going to cover the, the language and the tools we use to measure the microbiome. It's going to talk about uh, the role and the etiology of certain diseases such as colorectal cancer, uh, how uh, patients develop an asthmatic leakage through the microbiome. Uh, also going to be talking about uh, the role of oral antibiotics, mechanical bowel preparation, which is a topic of controversy, mm-hmm. um, and also talking about mechanisms of fecal transplantation, which is increasingly being used uh, in all diseases, not just colorectal cancers. And what have you found in, I know this, this is a lot of hard work that has probably gone into the study, but if you can summarize and paraphrase your findings for microbiome and how it relates to colorectal cancer, what would you say that is? 
I think it has a crucial role in the etiology of colorectal cancer. Some really good latest work showing how crucial the role is of uh, the microbiome in how colorectal cancers develop in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, It's shown that antibiotics can reduce the rates of anastomotic leakage as well as surgical site infection if used appropriately. Mm -hmm. And I'll give an overview of the guidelines on how antibiotics sh- should be used appropriately in our, our elective patients before colorectal cancer surgery. And do you foresee these um, studies like this and the microbiome tools being incorporated as part of the standard care pathways? I think we're getting there for sure, yeah. Um, we give our bowel preparation quite um, in a very blunderbuss tool at the moment Uh, we try and eliminate the whole microbiome and I think we're getting rid of some species that are actually very beneficial to Mm -hmm. our patients we're not just eliminating the the bad ones we need to work towards more of a smart bowel prep I think to try and uh, improve the the good species that inhabit our our bowels at the times of surgery uh, and be much cleverer at getting rid of the bad ones that cause poorer outcomes such as leaks and cancer recurrence Very interesting. Well, looking forward to your talk. Thank you for spending some time with Behind the Knife today. You're welcome. Pleasure. Appreciate it. And that wraps up our first day here in Dublin, Ireland, uh, covering ACP-GBI. Stay tuned for the next two days for more episodes to come. Till then, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.